Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. you have your Bibles this morning, let's go into the book of Romans again. We are still in Romans chapter 1 for the third week in a row, and we are going to be reading Romans chapter 1 verses 5 through 7, and uh, when you get to Romans 1, 5 through 7, you may stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Let's pray again. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. And I ask, Father, that your spirit would open our hearts and open our minds so that we would understand the word, that we would learn from it, that we would hear it, and that we would receive it with joy. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. I've had an interesting week this week. Um, I actually didn't put my sermon together until, oh, let's see, uh, about 2 p.m. yesterday. <laughs> I... Uh, I I've had a busy week, and it's it's been a good busy because, if, if I'm being honest, I feel bad about getting a paycheck half the time because I feel like most of what I do is just kind of talk to folks throughout the week and and just prepare my sermon and prepare Bible study lessons. But this week has been good because I feel like I've actually been being a pastor. Um, I've been I've been talking to people who've had real questions and real spiritual issues. Uh, at the coffee shop, and I've been meeting with other pastors in the community, and we've been talking about how to help the community more and how to do more as far as outreach is concerned. I feel like I'm actually doing something productive, and it's good. It's helpful. Uh, I say all of that to say that uh, I'm going to try not to preach very long this morning because I didn't feel like I prepared very well this week, so I'm going to shotgun a lot of what I have to say, um, and so it may, it may be like drinking from a fire hydrant, if I'm being honest. Uh, but you've got, your, you've got your sermon outline on the back of the bulletin, if you can kind of follow my thoughts a little bit there. Um, we're, going, we're going to kind of follow this same vein of talking about what Paul wants us to know about his reason for writing the, the letter to the, Roman, to the Christians who are in Rome. Last week, you know, we talked about how to address the identity crisis going on in our culture and how to address the identity crisis going on in ourselves by learning how God identifies us and agreeing with how he addresses us. You know, we no longer need to identify ourselves by our sin because Jesus has set us free from our sin. And so when we choose to identify ourselves by our sin, we end up wearing the chains that Jesus died to break. 
And so the way we solve that is we, 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 look at the, we look at the Word of God and we think, okay, well, how does God see us in Christ? Well, He sees us as righteous in Christ. He sees us as clean in Christ. He sees us free from sin in Christ. And so if we, if we understand that, then we can identify with that as well. And that will help us in our fight against sin. And so this week we are talking about how Paul talks about calling and purpose of, of the broader church. You'll remember a couple weeks ago when we covered verses 1 through 4, we talked about how Paul addressed his own personal calling and purpose, and then we talked about how his we, then we talked about his conversion last week. This week, Paul talks about the calling and purpose in the broader scope of the church. Because if you'll notice in verse 5, he says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name. Verse 5 is a direct reference, I believe, to the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And if you look at these two passages side by side, as you'll see on the, on the back of your bulletin, the similarities are astounding. And I've, I've pointed out a few similarities, and I want to talk about the content of both of those texts. So if you'll notice... If you'll notice Matthew 28, 18 through 20, this is what we call the Great Commission. And this is a very familiar text of Scripture. You've, you've probably heard several people preach on it. You've heard several people teach on it about how we need to go out and make disciples. And here's what it says. It says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So first of all, if we, if we were to look at Romans chapter 1, verse 5, and we were to look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20, side by side, the first thing we would see is that there is a clear reference to the authority of Christ. If you notice there, uh, the first words of verse 5 are, "...through him." Through him, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. And then the first thing Jesus says in the Great Commission, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, this doesn't seem very significant just at a face, at a face value reading, but this is actually very significant because none of this works. None of this works unless Jesus has authority. One of the first things I learned... When I was kind, of, when I when I felt like I was being discipled, is uh, I learned the Great Commission. I was required as part of my discipleship course that I was taking at that time to be able to quote the Great Commission verbatim. And whenever I would remember it, all I could remember is is verse nineteen. You know, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And all, all I could remember is that part because that's the part that had always been drilled into me. And Kirby Vardaman, the, the pastor who was kind of leading me through that discipleship class, he said, no, 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 you've got to include verse 8. And the reason he said you've got to include verse 18 is because the part where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, like none of this works unless Jesus has authority. You can't go and make disciples of all nations unless Jesus has authority to give to you to do that. And so that's why there's a lot of churches that are functioning as if they're just social programs and social clubs, because they're not operating in the authority that God has given them through His Son. And so, none of this works unless Jesus has authority. 
and, and so then, the, then that begs the question, well, what gives Jesus authority? First of all, the first thing that gives Jesus authority is the fact of the incarnation. In John chapter 1, verse 14, for example, uh, John tells us that he became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the incarnation that, that God himself resides in, in flesh, that's who he is. And so that's what gives him authority, first of all. The next thing is his sinless life. Jesus' sinless life and his obedient death gives, us, it gives him authority to tell us to go make disciples. You'll remember in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul describes Jesus as being obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then his victorious resurrection. That's what gives Jesus authority. And so the great commission of going forth and making disciples, none of this works unless Jesus has authority, and he does. And so the next thing we see when we compare Romans 1.5 to Matthew 28.18-20 is we see that there is a reference to obedience. Notice it says in Romans 5, Roman 1.5 again, Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. Obedience to the faith. And then, when you move to the Great Commission, part of the Great Commission is in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there's a reference to obedience. Then there's a reference to the scope of the nations. In Romans 1.5 again, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. And then, what is, then where does Jesus tell us to go? In verse 19 of Matthew 28, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now that's interesting too because... Whenever we think about the command to go forth into all the nations, we, we think of equipping missionaries and equipping evangelists to go forth and go overseas and do all this work. And it's good work that's being done, especially if people who are doing it are genuinely called to do it. It's very good work. But the problem is we've created a system where you know, we feel like there's this great emphasis on going out to all the nations. And so people, they, they make these mission trips and they go overseas and they serve for several weeks at a time, and they come back and they say they've done a missions trip. Well, the problem is that's not originally, historically, how missions trips were done. If you go back to the 1800s to the days of uh, Baptist missionary William Carey, who was like one of the first big overseas missionaries, they didn't do mission trips like that. They didn't do mission trips like we do it today. How they did mission trips is they packed up for life. They took a casket with them because they knew they were going to die over there. And they went across the sea and they stayed there for 20, 30 years or until they died because they were committed to building churches. They were committed to building communities in these places where people didn't even know who God was. And so I don't think it's... And, and so I, historically, when you look at how missions worked back then, it doesn't make sense to me for, you know, to plan a big mission trip, go overseas for a couple weeks, and, you know, take some selfies with some hungry kids and say, well, we've done God's work. No, you haven't done God's work. You haven't done anything. Like, th those people, they went over there. People like William Carey, uh, people like Adoniram Judson, these were like the historical missionaries who went over there and they said, we're going to get this done or we're going to die trying. Adoniram Judson is a prime example of that. If you ever have time, look him up. Look at the history of what he did in Burma. Burma had no knowledge of God whatsoever. They went up, All of them were pagans. There were cannibals over there, whole nine yards. He went over to Burma 
and said, I'm, and said, I'm going to bring the gospel to these people. He did, and to this day there's over 200 churches there. All because Adoniram Judson said, I'm going to pack up, go and take the gospel to these people. That's how missions work. Imagine if, imagine if people today were that determined to, to take the gospel into these, into these foreign locations. Imagine if people were that determined to give their lives over to this whole project of taking the gospel to all the nations. And another thing, is I, another thing is I think whenever we see a reference to the nations in Scripture, I think we need to see it as an eschatological reading. Uh, and, and here's what I mean by that, because I'm using big words again. Um, I think whenever we see a reference to the nations, we need to see this as an end times passage. We need to see this as an end times issue. And what I mean by that is that when you look all throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, um, particularly in the response of reading that we had this morning in Psalm 138, verse 4, um, you see where the psalmist David, he writes, All kings on earth will give you thanks, O Lord. Well, and you see passages like that in the Psalms all the time. David says, Well, all the kings of the earth will bow down. All the kings of the earth will, will look to you, O Lord. And we look at that passage and we think, Well, David's just being poetic. David's just... David's just having some kind of, you know, very thoughtful attitude towards, towards the scope of the nations. Or he's just being dramatic for the sake of his poetry. No, David had a real belief that all of the kings of the earth would one day look to God. He, that all the kings of the earth would one day turn to God. And where does he get that idea? Where does he get that idea? He gets that idea from the fact that God is ruling and reigning over the whole earth and not just working with the Jewish people, not just working in the Jewish community, but he's working, he's working in ways that the Jewish community doesn't even see throughout the whole world. That's why, whenever, that's why you read stories in the Old Testament of Elijah helping a, helping a widow's son who's, who's not even Jewish. That's why you see Elisha baptizing Naaman, who's a pagan, that's why you see the, all of these miracles being done for these people who are not within the Jewish covenant and community. Even in today's, even in today's Sunday school lesson, Jesus is performing miracles for people who are not Jewish. They're not in the covenant. Well, why is that? It's because God is working in ways that they don't see. And so David has this grand vision. He has this grand idea that all of the kings of the earth are one day going to, to look to God and not just some generic God of their own making, not some false idol, that they're actually going to look to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what the Great Commission really is about. So when Jesus says, so when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, he's actually got a plan. He's actually got an idea. You know, because if you're just if you're just looking at it from David's perspective, David knows the end in a way. The end for David is all the kings of the earth will look to God. All the kings of the earth will give you thanks, O Lord. Like, that's the end in David's mind. Now, he may not know how to get from where he is to that end point, but Jesus does. Jesus has a plan, and the plan of Jesus is that his people would go forth and make disciples of all nations. I don't know, that, that, that's probably about as clear as mud, but that's kind of, that's kind of what my thinking on that. And so the fourth reference you see, the fourth comparison between Romans 1.5 and, 
in Matthew 28 is there's a, there's a clear reference to the name of God. In Romans 1.5, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And then whenever you look in verse 19 of Matthew 28, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why is this significant? Because when you get married, you take a new name, right? When you get married, you take a new name. And in the same way, when you're baptized, you take a new name. And so that whole, that whole thing, and you've heard me talk about this before, that whole thing about whenever you're baptized and the, the preacher or the pastor, whoever's baptizing you, they say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not just words they say. It's not just a formula. It actually means something. And what that means is that you no longer live by your old identity. You no longer live by who you were before. You have a new identity, you have a new name, and that new name and new identity is not originated in you in any way. It comes from God. It has to come from God. And so, whenever you're baptized, you are, bab you are literally baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are covered in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God personally puts His name on you. And that's powerful when you think about it. And so, and so why is that significant? It's significant because our, our new name shapes our identity. You know, if you go back and read, if you go forward in Romans and you read Romans 6, verses 1 through 9, you are no longer known as a dead person. You are now known as an alive person. You are now alive in Christ. If you go to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, what does Paul say? He says that whenever you were raised in baptism, you were raised with him through faith in the working of God. According to 2 Corinthians, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, in Christ you are made a new creation. Something happens to you in the waters of baptism. And what happens is that you are made new. And so, and so whenever you, especially if you kind of look at this side by side and see all the comparisons, once you see how Romans 1.5 and, and Matthew 28.18-20, once you see how they fit together, you can't, you can't really unsee it. And so what's significant about this as it relates to the entire book of Romans is that this is the filter through which we should see the book of Romans. The Great Commission is why Paul is writing this letter. This is how Paul is making disciples in Rome. This is how Paul is building up the community of faith in Rome. And it looks nothing like how we might try to make disciples today, which is why I also wanted to point out some misconceptions that we have about the Great Commission. Now, this is something I've always wanted to talk about in depth because there's so much about many popular passages in the Bible that we don't understand and we just take it for granted because they're plucked out of context and put on a t-shirt or a mug and we just assume we know what those texts mean. Like a, a good example of this is uh, Philippians 4.13. Like 
where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, we think that means I can get a promotion at work. I can win this ball game. I can get any of my temporal materialistic wants met. You know, as long as Christ is strengthening me to do that, then I can kind of use the name of Jesus as a talisman. And that's not really how that works. What the passage actually means in context is that Paul is referring to the ability to endure persecution. Paul is telling the church at Philippi that the ability to stay strong under persecution is in them because Christ is at work in them. What Paul is saying is that if you belong to God through faith in Christ, then the ability to endure is, to endure is within you because Christ is in you. Now, if you think we've missed the boat on Philippians 4.13, let's look at how badly we've misunderstood the Great Commission. First of all, in the Great Commission, whenever we read Matthew 28, our minds immediately jump to the word go. You know, go, therefore, and make disciples. And so we've turned it into this whole uh, command of action. You know, we've got to go. We've got to hurry up and get out there. And what we don't realize is that the word go in that text, if you, look at, if you look at the Greek, the word go is not active, it's passive. And that's significant because if you're reading it, the actual meaning of the, of the passage is not go and make disciples, it's as you're going, make disciples. You don't have to be these people that run around with tracks in your hand and try to get everyone to pray the sinner's prayer and know the four spiritual laws or whatever, as you're going, as you're living your life, as you're providing for your family, as you're going to work, as you are being a normal human being, make disciples as you go. Plant seeds as you go. You don't have to be a crazy street preacher. You can live your life and be relatively normal I'm not relatively normal, but that that, that doesn't matter. Um, You you can be a relatively normal person and make disciples. The second misconception I think we have is the actual command to make disciples. Because we read make disciples, and and it goes into that first problem I mentioned. We read make disciples as make converts. Because we look at the success of the tent crusades and we look at the success of preachers like Billy Graham and we look look at the success of many evangelists and we think well they're making disciples they're not making disciples they're making converts now don't get me wrong Billy Graham was specifically called by God to do the work that he did but here's the thing you're not Billy Graham I'm not Billy Graham none of us are Billy Graham we are who we are we are who God has called us to be God called Billy Graham to be Billy Graham and do what he did. And so we think if we're not getting, we think if we're not getting the same numbers of people to come down the aisle, make a profession of faith with you know tears streaming down their face, then we're not really doing much. And that's just not true. We think if we can't whip people up into an emotional frenzy and respond to the word in a certain way, then we're not doing our job. And that's not true either. The command is to make disciples, not make converts. And I'll tell you where this idea came from. Uh, Brian Zahn, in his book, Water to Wine. Water to Wine, by the way, is a very good book from Brian Zahn. It's where he talks about how he went from a name-it-claim-it, word-of-faith preacher to a historic uh, 
to a historic, you know, sane pastor, and he, how he took his church, how he took his church out of the charismatic word of faith movement to where they are now. It's a very good book. But he says, but here's what he says about how we kind of got this idea about making converts. He said, taking its cues from the scientism of a, of a bygone era, Western Christianity has tried for too long to make the gospel a kind of scientific formula, a pseudoscience of biblical facts, atonement theories, and sinners' prayers, when it's more like a song, a symphony, a poem, a painting, a drama, a dance, and yes, a mystery. The Industrial Revolution of the 19th century saw the artisan replaced with the conveyor-belted smoke-belching factories. Things would no longer be handcrafted, they would now be mass-produced, and Christianity followed suit. The revivalism of the 19th and 20th centuries sought to industrialize evangelism. While Henry, while Henry Ford was mass-producing cars, Billy Sunday was mass-producing converts. Except it doesn't work that way. Listen to what Jesus says to Nicodemus about being born of the Spirit. <coughs> Don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows where it wants, just as you can hear what just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Jesus says we can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. And the irony is we've done just the opposite. We've completely explained how people are born again. We know the five points, the four laws, and the three steps. There's no mystery. Here, accept this atonement theory, pray this manufactured prayer, and presto, you're born again. No mystery to it. Just a cheap, formulaic, mass-produced, one-size-fits-all conversion. No wonder the vast majority of these conversions turns out to be defective. The Spirit of God is an artisan, not an industrialist. And so what does all that mean in plain English? It means back in the day, whenever we started, whenever we started building factories, we found a way to get product out to people quicker, right? Companies found a way to get product out to people quicker and in faster amounts of time. And somehow, Christianity found a way to do the same thing. We have, tent, we have tent meetings. We have tent crusades. We'll get, people, we'll get people to pray the sinner's prayer, and then we'll say that they're saved. And that's not how it works. That's not making a disciple. That's making a convert. Now, making a disciple might start with making a convert. Making a disciple might start with making a convert. But the command of Jesus was to go make disciples. And how does one do that? What's process? It's a process to make a disciple. It's a lifelong process. And we're not comfortable with processes. We're not comfortable with long, drawn-out processes. Do you know how I know we're not comfortable with that? We invented the microwave. Right. You know, so we, we invented the microwave because we're not comfortable with processes. We don't like waiting. And we want things instant and in a hurry. And that's why revivalism was so successful, because they thought they were producing disciples in mass. And they weren't. They were just producing converts that had an emotional experience. And a third misconception that we've had about the Great Commission is that it ends with baptism. Now, if you go back and read the Great Commission, remember I told you that whenever I was trying to memorize the Great Commission, all I could remember was verse 19. And that's because all that was, that's because all that was really taught. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And we think, well, that's where it ends. That's not where it ends. 
that's only just the beginning. And see, we we have I know I know that we kind of have this idea, you know, and, and of course I'm saying the general we, not we, not a specific we, but I know we have this idea because you see it all the time in churches. Churches will have these services where they'll invite people to come up, pray the sinner's prayer. They'll give their lives to Jesus, and they'll get them in the baptistry, and they'll baptize them. And let's say you've got 17 people who come up one Sunday morning, and they profess faith, and they want to be baptized. Well, you take them back, you baptize them, and they'll say, well, guess what? We had 17 people saved today. Did you really? Let's see where they are in six months, and I can tell you whether or not they were saved. All they may have had was an emotional experience. Now, an emotional experience can begin a relationship with God, but it can't be the foundation of it. And so we, we think that because we baptize some folks, and don't get me wrong, baptism is an important step. We think that because we baptize some people, we made some disciples, and that's not the case. The Great Commission doesn't end at baptism. Look what it says in, look what it says in Matthew 28. 28.20. <clears throat> I'll go back and read verse 19 again. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Great Commission doesn't end at baptism. Teaching people to obey all of the things that Jesus said is essential. And how long does that take? A really long time. It takes a lifelong process. And all of us are on this journey of all of us are on this journey of learning to do what Jesus says. Teaching people to obey all of the things that Jesus said is essential. Uh, Dallas Willard uh, is really good about you know talking about spiritual disciplines and talking about the kingdom of God and things like that. And he said that this part of the Great Commission, the teaching people to observe part, he said that that's the most neglected part of the Great Commission. Matter of fact, he's written an entire book on that topic called The Great Omission because it's something we just tend to forget about. It's the most neglected portion of the Great Commission, and we've created programs to boost numbers without promoting growth. We've created programs to boost numbers without promoting growth. We, we like what's easy and quick, and creating disciples is not a quick and easy process. We're not comfortable with processes. And so the, then all of this, of course, begs another question. Well, how can we do all of this? How can we be sure that this is going to work, you know, by our definition of work? You know, we think in very practical terms. You know, and that, that's funny. We think in very practical terms compared to Jesus because if you, if you do all of your programs, if you, if you judge success by numbers alone, Jesus wasn't very successful. Because he only had twelve, he only had 12 people towards the end of his ministry. Several hundred people followed him. And then in John chapter 6, he kind of fixes that problem because he, told, he, he says, if you believe me, then eat my flesh and drink my blood. And many of them got offended and they left. And so many of them walk away because Jesus said something that was incredibly offensive to them. And he turns to his disciples and says, well, are you guys going to leave too? And what does Peter say? Peter says, well, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Peter may not have understood what Jesus said. He made it, and if you read the if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll find that Peter wasn't exactly the sharpest tool in the shed. He may not have understood what Jesus said most of the time. 
But he knew enough to know that he couldn't go anywhere else to find life. And so how can we do all this? How can we trust this process of making disciples? We can trust it because Jesus is with us. Notice the last portion of the Great Commission. He says, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And that's a promise you can take to the bank. Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us and to strengthen us and to comfort us. And he doesn't give us, this is, this is, this is so helpful for me to remember. Jesus doesn't just give us a grocery list of things to do and then leave us to our own devices. He is with us every step of the way. Lo, I am with you always. This week has been an example of that in my own life. I've been busy actually being a pastor, going to meetings, being a husband, spending time with my wife, and I didn't have a sermon until yesterday. On Friday night, I had no idea what I would say. On Saturday morning, when I woke up, I had no idea what I would say. When I got to Midtown, I got my Bible open, got my headphones on, it's like everything just assembled in my mind, and I had to hurry up and get it on paper and in a Word document before I forgot it. And it, and it had to have been God. You know, y'all... Y'all look at me and shake my hand after the service and say, well, that's a good message, preacher. Most of this stuff doesn't even come from me. Like, you know the sermons I preach and they bomb? Those are mine. The sermons that are good, those are God's. And that's how progress in your, in your walk with God works. That's how discipleship works. When you simply look at where you are and you only compare it to where you think you should be, then you get very discouraged. And you think, well, you know, I've not come very far. But when you look at where you are now and you compare that to where you were five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, you think, well, that's God. I couldn't have done it on my own. There were two boys walking down a country road. And they were walking along this fence line. It was an old wooden fence. And on a fence post, on this, one of these fence posts, there was a turtle up on that fence post. And he was in a shell. He had his legs out dangling, trying to walk. He couldn't get anywhere. His shell was on top of that fence post. And those boys were kind of looking at it. And uh, one boy said to the other one, how do you think he got up there? And the other one said, I don't know, but he couldn't have gotten up there on his own. And that's you with God. You, you couldn't have gotten to where you... Look at, look at you, where you are now in life. Look at the blessings you have. You couldn't have got that on your own. Somebody had to put you where you are, and it wasn't you. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.